Welcome back to We Are Already Free, a podcast helping free people and down-to-earth seekers to live their truth and be the change. If you've had enough of feeling disempowered by the things you can't control, if you're ready to spend your one precious life growing a beautiful world with the people you love, then you are in the right place. The sad reality is that most of us don't even know who we really are, let alone how to live our purpose and grow a beautiful world together. Authenticity is one of the two primary needs of every human, but too many of us live our lives without ever truly experiencing our own authentic selves. If you've ever felt like you don't fit in, like you're too much or not enough for this world, as though you can't catch a break from the overwhelm of simply trying to be yourself, then this episode with Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist, is for you. In it, you'll learn why so many people are struggling to be themselves, why purpose can only come through authenticity, how childhood sets up our entire life experience, and what you can do to begin or deepen your journey home to wholeness, no matter where your starting point is right now. I believe this is the most important journey any of us will ever take. And Dr. Nicole's new workbook, How to Meet Yourself, provides a roadmap to guide us home to who we really are. Dr. Nicole LaPera, a holistic psychologist, trained at Cornell University and New School for Social Research. She leads the Self-Healers Movement, an international community of people joining together to take healing into their own hands. She is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, How to Do the Work. Her new book, How to Meet Yourself, the workbook for self-discovery, was released on 6th of December, 2022. Links to her new book, to Dr. Nicole, and everything we discuss in this episode are available in the show notes at alreadyfree.me slash howtomeetyourself. That's alreadyfree.me slash howtomeetyourself, all one word. This is one of the most powerful, inspiring, and hopeful episodes I've ever recorded. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that that is a really big deal. The information in here, if you consistently apply it, has the potential to positively transform how you experience yourself, your life, and all your relationships. In this episode, we cover why so many wake up as adults and don't know what we really want or who we really are. Why thinking our way out of trauma just isn't enough. The greatest gifts we can give our romantic partners. And near the end, Dr. Nicole shares how you can re reconnect with your authentic self. And as always, and especially in this episode, so much more. I'm your host, Nathan Maingard, and as a highly sensitive person in a highly insensitive society, I was nearly crushed by my efforts to fit a mold our society simply calls being a good citizen. Having navigated a return to my own authenticity, while still stumbling along with as much grace as I can muster, I dedicate myself to helping others like me through gentle breathwork, empowering songs, stories, and poems, and inner life skills coaching please do reach out via my links in the show notes if you'd like to connect with me personally. 
As you'll hear Dr. Nicole discuss in this episode, one of the primary tools for learning how to meet yourself is conscious breathing. I've created a five-minute guided breathwork meditation to support you in your practice, which you can download for free by visiting the show notes, which again, you'll find at alreadyfree.me forward slash how to meet yourself. And now I am honored to present you with this empowering conversation with the holistic psychologist, Dr. Nicole LaPera. May it support you in learning how to meet yourself. Take a deep breath and let's begin. Thank you so much for coming on my new podcast as one of the last guests on my old podcast, which was Getting Naked with Nate. Uh, so much has changed. And thank you so much for, for joining me again. Thank you so much for having me again. It's wild to me to be someone who's witnessed your journey from obviously through social media, through the, the wonderful platform of Instagram and seeing how when I first discovered you, I think you had around... There were around 70,000 people following your journey and following your sharings. And then it quickly moved. By the time we had a podcast, it was over a million. And now it's, well, I think, almost six million. And, and you've released two, or you're releasing two books. Has your second, has the new one come out yet? Um, the workbook, yes, just landed, published on December 6th. Um, I'm actually working on a third book, a narrative book, which will be out next December. So I've been quite busy. A lot has changed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is just so amazing. I Yeah, so your book, your new book, this How to Meet Yourself, and just having had a, a, a very grateful look at the sort of pre-release, it just immediately what hit me was how useful this book is and how impactful it's going to be for so many people. And then the other piece was how gorgeous it is. It's so beautiful. So share with us a little more, just like what's going on for you in this moment. You've just released it a few days ago. Like wh what's happening for you? <laughs> uh, a little bit of everything. Um, I was sharing with you before we hit record here how I think the best way to describe what I'm feeling is overwhelmed. Um, not even in terms of, I think a lot of times when we hear overwhelmed, we think of a negative context. Usually I'm overwhelmed with stress. Um, right now I'm feeling overwhelmed with all different emotions. And really even just hearing you describe not only the look of the workbook, but the content of the workbook is is so validating. Because for me, thinking about putting all of this, this journey, really, the roadmap, as I like to refer to the workbook as now, into the pages of a livable entity, like a workbook that someone could bring with them, really was something I had been thinking about since I wrote my first book, uh, How to Do the Work. And while that book, I think, is very actionable at the end of every chapter, whatever it is, the concept that we're talking about, ego, inner child, what have you, I offer, you know, an action plan, a way to implement that tool. Though the reality of it is few of us know how we're actually stuck. Um, we are so unconscious to ourselves that I really wanted to provide um, a roadmap, like I was describing earlier, but a roadmap of where to look, where to turn that spotlight of consciousness, how to begin to explore what happens in patterns are actually individually keeping each of those readers stuck and ultimately giving them the tools to create the change. So knowing intuitively, again, that I wanted to provide that in the format of a workbook and hearing how not only comprehensive um, it is feeling to you, but the look of it. And I, I can't take credit for the look of it. The team at Harper, in terms of the design, did such an incredible job. We, you know, as our team over here, knew we wanted it to be visually appealing for many different reasons, but they really did knock it out of the park. What's kind of 
blown my mind a little bit about going through this workbook and looking at it is how many parallels there are between it and my own journey. And I remember in the last episode where we conversed, I asked you about plant medicines and you had a beautiful response about like, yes, it's beautiful, transformational, anything that helps you to transform. But then what are you integrating? What's the next piece? And I really, since that conversation, have learned so much about that part, having had these big transformations and then and then everything falls apart again. And and now have it starting to language, starting to have a map that helps me to communicate like, oh, this is what the nervous system is doing. This is the old patterning. These are the habits. So I feel like I'm only just starting to really discover who I actually am. And, and so that would be a question I'd, I'd love to hear from you is why are so many of us completely ignorant as to who we really are and, and what it is that we actually want? I appreciate you sharing your own, you know, kind of feelings around uncertainty and being unsure. Because I think a lot of us, especially as we age into our adult, later adult years, a lot of us carry shame when we don't know <laughs> who we are, what we want. I mean, I remember a really pivotal moment in my 20s where um, I had a really hard time even deciding how I wanted to be spending time, let alone these deeper questions of what makes me light up, what's my passion, what's my purpose, right? What makes me uniquely me? And I didn't have, to speak to your point, the language to first and foremost understand why I didn't have answers to those questions and why the more I spoke about it, I saw such a similar reflection back with very few of us into our adult years having answered to those questions. And I think the simple way to understand why we're so disconnected from that deeper, authentic, more intuitive space lays in our habits and patterns that many of us have been repeating in that blind autopilot state since childhood. And many of those habits and patterns are driven by, I'm really happy that we're already diving into the nervous system aspect of it, um, into all of the language that a lot of us lack around, first and foremost, how foundational our nervous system is. Um, our nervous system, you know, runs everything from how we are cognitive processes or how we're thinking. Um, it plays a large role in terms of how we can tolerate or regulate, cope with our emotions. Um, and all of those things kind of join together, really how we embody ourselves or how we're showing up in the world around us. And when we're dysregulated, when our nervous system, you know, isn't in a safe state of connectivity, all of this is impacted. And we can obviously go deeper into all of that, but impacted by our childhood environments, we are living in a very disconnected habit self as our best attempt often at keeping ourselves habitually safe because in the habitual for our subconscious mind is the predictable, is that sense of familiarity, of safety, assumed safety, of course. Though again, if we're living in habits that aren't serving our authentic self and we continue to repeat those habits, I think it's really understandable then why we wake up at whatever age or decade that is and we don't know what we want. We don't have answer to those deeper questions. Just recently, I had an experience where I sat with a medicine. And again, I'm not recommending any of these medicines to anyone. This is my path. This is what's been working for me and how I've chosen. But there's a specific medicine called Kambo, which is a frog medicine that they apply to your skin after burning the skin. And so it actually is a nervous, it goes straight into the nervous system through the, through the skin. And every time I've sat with that medicine, it has been the most like almost traumatizingly painful and intense. And I've often heard people say, this is the, like they're more scared of that than any other medicine that they can think of, any other intense experience they can think of. And I had this experience again where I 
just a few weeks ago was offered the opportunity and I almost said no because I was like, I don't want to go through that again. But I felt this calling. I was like, something's calling me. And for the first time, and I actually feel emotional talking about it because I chose to go into a very difficult situation where my whole nervous system was fully activated. And for the entire experience, I was just 100% present and I just breathed and I was calm and I met myself. And so I'm guessing like that that's the, the kind of intention of all of this work, of all these little steps, is to reach a point where we can go into more difficult, challenging situations and actually be okay there. Yeah, I 100% agree. And um, I was actually having somewhat of a similar conversation with someone around plant medicine, and I'll share my own journey, two versions of my, of my journey in plant medicine, because, you know, ultimately, I think what you're talking about, right, going to this place of feeling really d- different degrees of discomfort and having a sense of like safety calm, like you're saying, I was present to it. When we can remain present to our, you know, experiences, that is, we are in a, the scientific language is a zone of tolerance, right? We are, we can tolerate the stress, meaning we can see the stress. We don't have to check out. We don't become reactive to it. We're able to stay hand in hand in presence, observing what is happening. That's when we get into that sweet spot that many of us are searching for of responsiveness. I'm sure the very famous Viktor Frankl quote between a stimulus and a, between a stimulus and a response is that space, right? And in that space is where we can create life. And the reality of it is many of us don't have that space because when stress overwhelms our system, we become reactive or we become detached. And what I was going in to say earlier is I had experimented with plant medicine when I was actually quite young. I was in my teenage years and I didn't have that ability to keep myself safe in overwhelming emotions. And I had one of those terrible, nightmarish, bad trips, as you call it, um, so much so that I avoid it you know, re-engaging with any sort of plant medicine for a very long time. And, you know, for me, that really illustrates the reality that many of us are living. Of course, I experienced that in this plant medicine experience, you know, moment of time, but the large majority of us, we can't tolerate stress. We become reactive and overwhelmed almost immediately. And so then obviously flash forward in time, having done the work to reconnect with my body, to explore how dysregulated my nervous system is, to develop some tools, conscious tools where I can bring myself back, ground myself in safety, allow myself to be present with stress. I've had then other moments of plant medicine experiments since that time. And now it's different right? Because now when I'm in what could be a very overwhelming emotional experience, I have that base of safety. I have the ability to remain in my own presence while I'm experiencing something stressful. So I love even just mapping this on to even outside of a plant medicine-based moment, stress in life, right? How present can we be to the stressful moments that we're definitely going to have as part of our human experience. And again, the large majority of us, if you're listening, you're like, well, I'm not present. I'm reactive. I'm detached. I'm nowhere near able to be in that responsive space. And again, nothing is wrong with you if that is the case. Chances are you never learned and your nervous system has become imprinted with that dysregulation and you've become reliant on that checking out or that explosion as a way of keeping yourself safe. Yet we can create new space, which is my hope for all of us and any of the work that I'm putting out so that we can become more responsive, more regulated, more grounded beings. Well, let's go back into that. Were you talking about, you know, many of the people listening, perhaps most, if not all, 
will be having that response of like, oh, I don't feel very present and my nervous system is all shut and all the stories, which again is, as you say, that came from somewhere. So where do those, where did that come from? Where did those, and then also uh, to deeper, to kind of expand on that is around, because I know for myself, I still have habits that don't serve me and that have served me in a way to keep me safe enough, but not really safe in a way that includes presence. <laughs> and so where do those, that where does that nervous system set up? Where do those habits come from? And how are they sort of preventing us from connecting into the present, which for me is really, uh, and I'm sure, and I know that you resonate with this, is the authentic self, is, is that self that is here now. So in, in childhood, I think this is, you know, a, I like to share the, the science or the physiology, the biology, neurobiology behind a lot of kind of where these things came from, because I think it can not only give us language, relieve us some shame, but also it contains oftentimes the, the step, the what we need to do next. And something I think that very few of us know is that the nervous system, when we are born as a human infant, our nervous system is actually still developing. It's developing realistically until our mid to late 20s, which means that not only are we a developing being, we're a dependent being. We can't physically keep ourselves alive as a human infant and our nervous system can't regulate itself. It learns to deal with or to regulate through stress through the presence of other people or other nervous systems in our environment. So really simply when a baby is crying out in distress, it's usually an indicator that there's an unmet need. The baby is hungry. It needs to sleep. Um, maybe at, you know, as it progresses into toddler years, it's having an emotional experience. It needs support. It needs a parent to come to be curious, to identify what the unmet need could be, and then to help or meet the need for the child. Helping that child then stop crying, ultimately go back into safety. The more consistently that happens, the, pa the parent is present, attuned, right? Not making it about the parent, what is wrong with the child, exploring and helping the child regulate. Then the child's nervous system over time learns to do that on its own. It learns to deal with stressful experiences and differing degrees of stress. Now, the large majority of us, for many different reasons, um, some of it generational, some of it cultural beliefs, cultural happenings that impacted all of us differently, we might have had, and this is where it was a bit confusing for me, I, I always had a physically present caregiver, but what I didn't have, I've come to realize is an emotionally present caregiver. So in those moments of dysregulation, I didn't have someone who was attuned to me to help me create safety. In addition... All of the nervous systems around me and those of my caregivers, my parents, my older siblings were so dysregulated because of their own lack of safety, because of physical issues that were happening in my home, because of the city, very stressful environment that we were living in. I never had that safe home base to help my nervous system co-regulate. So the simple fact is, is because we're in that state of developmental dependency and our nervous system is still developing, we are greatly impacted by those earliest environments. Really simply, they teach us how to navigate, how to understand and how to navigate all of the emotions that we're going to have, which really then maps onto how we're relating in our relationships, because that's where most of these habits and these patterns are so present. So in absence, again, of being taught how to safely regulate our mind, our body, when we're feeling stressed, we will fall into an adaptation. We will learn how to fit in to whatever the environment is allowing us to do. And this is where we become reactive. We become detached. We squash or suppress down parts of ourself 
if at one time it wasn't safe to express them. And then we carry those habits with us again, stored in that autopilot. So when we meet stress into our adult years, we revert back. We rely back on those old ways that we once learned to deal with it. And this is where many of us feel very shameful. Sure. Yeah, the word it was that was a powerful end to that sentence. As you said, shameful. I just that connected into something deep in me. And I, and also everything you've just said, you've given me an insight around because in a way, so my parents both as so many, no judgment. Thank you, mom, thank you, papa. You I know you guys did your best, but like that dysregulation that they were experiencing massively impacted me, as is so common for so many of us. And what's interesting for me, because for a long time my mom was actually physically not there like she went she went away it's a long story but my dad was always there and there's been a part of me that's carried a shame even around like why wasn't that enough like how can I still have some at times I've experienced a lot of anger towards him and be like why didn't he provide all the things you know he was there like and why didn't I why wasn't that enough for me what's wrong with me that that wasn't enough so thank you so much for for that insight and that reflection yeah, I appreciate you sharing so much of your own journey. And similar to you, I didn't have the language. I looked around at parents who very well intentionally were doing the best that they could, were loving us in the ways, again, that they were both equipped to love us being me and both of my siblings, ultimately. So it was of no ill intent and very similar. I wonder, first and foremost, I didn't know why I was struggling. I didn't have the language. I love that we kind of keep going back to that. I didn't have the language to understand why I personally was feeling, despite having active physical presence, um, not only with my family, I you know, was always in communication, always in contact with them. I was at a very active social life. I was always finding myself in a relationship. Yet, if I was being honest... And when in you know explosive moments when I was angry, I would be honest, I never really felt connected. And that was my number one complaint. I never felt connected. I never felt close to the people around me. And without that language, for a very long time, I wondered what's wrong with me? Why don't I? I have physically present. It was kind of that saying, I don't know if anyone listening has heard, feeling alone in a crowded room. And I mean, I lived in a crowded room such as New York City, where the millions of people and I had never at those decade of my life that I spent there felt so deeply alone and I had no language. So I had nothing left but to wonder, okay, well, Nicole, what's wrong with you? You're the, you know, you must have something inherently wrong with you that you feel so deeply alone. And now I understand that the reason I felt so alone is to deal with that overwhelming stress in my childhood. I disconnected. I disconnected from my body. I disconnected from my emotions. I entered into this cycle of suppressing most of which was authentically me in service for me. It was of performing, of showing up, of servicing other people, leaving a whole aspect of myself so pushed below the surface that once I now have the language, it's understandable that I didn't feel connected to the world around me because I wasn't. But without that language, I felt very shameful. I wondered what is wrong with me. Why are other people seemingly so fulfilled and happy and passionate and purposeful? And I've checked all the boxes that I thought were going to translate to that. And yet I feel so deeply alone. <laughs> well, I just have to say that, well, I choose to say that I am so grateful for the authentic you. Thank you so very much. <laughs> Thank you. I'm appreciative. And that, that really goes a long way, Nate, because there's a part, I think, of a lot of us as we become practiced at not showing ourselves. Um, we don't, we worry. There's a very big fear and concern of how other people, and oftentimes, again, this is based in what has happened to us because at one time, 
showing our authentic self wasn't received well. There wasn't space for it. If not, it was outright, right? Squash, suppress. We were instructed directly not to say or do those things. So for the large majority of us that have had some version of that experience, there's still a fear even into adulthood that if I were to show you really who I am, you might not like me. This relationship might not be able to maintain its connection on the other side of you seeing the true me. Gosh, you are speaking directly to my soul here. This is uh, that feeling. So I, in my work, as well as I've said, plant medicine for me has been really beneficial. I And actually in all the healing work I started with, whether it was breath work or anything that involved vulnerability or that kind of, where I knew I was going to almost lose control, which I suppose is part of that nervous system setup where I knew I would have to go somewhere outside of the comfort zone. And I was very scared of that. I, I The subconscious thought I was running for a long time, which then I brought into consciousness was, was um, I'll just heal alone. And then everyone can get to enjoy the full, happy, healthy me. (laughs) And it was very clear at some point, the medicine clearly said, Nathan, you are not alone. It's a story. That castle you've built, you are so a part of this frequency, these waves of life that are flowing through the universe. Please go and sit in a circle with others. And that's when I stepped into circle, which was probably the hardest thing I've ever done and the most beneficial. So you have just talked, again, languaging around, oh, that's why I wanted to be so alone all the time. I'm getting chills actually, because I I will share um, for anyone out there wondering, I still have those moments. Mm. There are still moments in time where it is difficult, very vulnerable for me, even though I have a very supportive community. I have two very supportive partners around me. um, I still have that little independent person that when I'm feeling hurt or when I'm feeling vulnerable, when I'm most in need of connecting with someone else, again, because all of that was unfamiliar. I didn't learn how to have that deep, intimate connection with that earliest caregiver being my mother. So there's still that wounded little girl who's desperately fearful, even in presence of someone being there like, Nicole, I love you. I support you. Let me in. There's still a very vulnerable, risky, scared little girl inside of me that wants to just march off to the room very similar to you and be like, I'll be back when I'm better. Um, <laughs> and then it's the conflict I think that occurs because I can share from being that you know, sequestered off in my room in my little hurt space thinking part of me, right, in protection that that's what I want. I want you to be away from me. You know, I'm, I'm fine on my own, yet there's another whole part of me, because that's the reality. We're made of parts. There's another part of me that desperately, desperately wants that connection. And for a long while, never really looked at the role I was playing, would hold the partner who's not in the room supporting me responsible <laughs> for not caring, not considering me enough in my emotions in this moment to come in, only to see how the joking language we now use in, in my partnership is I how I become a prickly pear, how I don't <laughs> let the person in, how I almost put daggers up and I yell for you to come closer and I don't make it possible or safe for you to actually come closer. And that's really all about me because I don't feel safe letting you in and sharing all of this again, because I think none of this is logical, right? I mean, I want to be connected to other people. Like I was saying, I want to be connected to my life. This is what was so problematic. Yet here I am still on my journey and I still have those moments where letting someone in feels incredibly risky. 
Gosh, this is this is crazy how much. So I've literally my family for years would called me prickly. Like that was one of the terms they would use a lot. Around, and I was like, I'm not like I'm just being assertive or whatever the story was that I had about it that that helped me get by. And and thank you for the reflection because I also do that still. Where when I when I do dysregulate, when I feel unsafe, if I'm not very wary of or aware of, I haven't yet regulated. That default thing is just to be like you know, get away from me. And so thank you again. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you you sharing. And I think too, I think about um, something that's been coming up for me a lot and in conversation and even hearing you, you know, acknowledge your family called you prickly. I'm, I'm having just all of these realizations of, of small things, small patterns, habits um, that too, you know, I was illustrating, showing in my family that were commented on that now, you know, while I don't think, I mean, maybe there was a little wounded part of me when these things would be observed. And for me, um, the way that I dealt with early on, at least, and I still have, again, remnants of this, the way that I dealt with this overwhelming anxiety looked very much like an OCD type presentation or symptoms that, you know, some listeners might experience themselves in life. I like to rearrange my, I had to have a specific order or presentation of items in my room in particular. Um, I was very obsessive of making sure and monitoring the way I looked in terms of my clothing with stains. I couldn't tolerate stains on my shoes, on my clothes. And I would wet my little finger and almost spot clean myself. I nail, I bit my nails a lot obsessively. So all of this kind of, again, I now view those and I'm sharing that because those things were, were commented on in my family. I was, you know, tease, oh, Nicole, you have a little stain on your shirt. Oh, Nicole's room, don't, don't touch something on her, on her dresser, right? She'll get upset. And no one had the language to understand that what I was doing, those are my desperate attempts as a very young girl, right? Into the state of dependency, but not having a safe caregiver to help me deal with those overwhelming feelings, those were the ways that my nervous system was trying to manage that overwhelming emotion. And it was very, very interestingly, like you, reflected back. It was observed in my family. Oh, wow, Nicole, do Nicole does these things. But again, none of us had the language to understand why Nicole was doing those things. And it took me many years to understand why I was doing those things. And now having the language, I view those moments again, like I was sharing is my nervous system's best attempt at creating regulation at creating safety when I was feeling overwhelmed. There's something in that around the sharing is actually so supportive because it gives anyone listening might be going, oh my gosh, I did those similar things or that there's that sense of not as alone as I think I am. I think that's what I, I'm, I'm feeling and, and grateful for. I, I want to return to and dive a little deeper into how to meet yourself, which honestly is such a good name. Like it's so direct and clear. Just like this is what you will get out of this book. Anyway, but before we dive into that, I actually, I posted on my social, on my Instagram a few days ago, just saying like, I have the wonderful Dr. Nicole LaPera coming on my podcast. If you could ask her one question, what would it be? So I just have a few questions that people, people shared and let's get into one now that I found quite interesting. I mean, I found them all interesting, but let's see how we do. So from Taryn Lewis Thomas, she asks, do you believe letting go of identifying with the story of your past traumas is what heals or that by healing past traumas, the letting go of identifying with them happens automatically? Yeah, that's no, that's a, that's a really, really great question. I think what, what Taryn is, it, mm, Taryn. Um, is illustrating is I would answer simply is that it's it's the process of both. And the reason why I'm hesitant in terms of let's talk about, you know, trauma and identity and stories and all of that. We all, our human brain has an inherent implicit desire 
to make sense of the world around us. It's always interpreting, making meaning of trying to determine what's happening around us, trying to understand the circumstances that we find ourselves in, mainly evolutionarily geared at one intention is to keep ourselves safe, right? I need to understand if I'm walking into a safe situation or if I'm walking into an unsafe situation so that I can modify my behavior. So all of our human brain is going to do that to make meaning. And based on, again, the early experiences that we've had, that is ultimately what we will use to interpret, to assign the meaning. And then we get very habitual. We like to predict what's happening. We tend to narrate our experiences in the same way. So when we start to have overwhelming experiences, when we start to, when we lack the developmental maturity to make sense of them in the nuanced way that we can in adulthood, really simply when we're a child, we can't pull back. We can't understand all of the complexities that go around with any person making any one decision, right? We can't understand that if we did not have a physically present, or if we had an absent caregiver, we can't understand that that person isn't in our life probably of no fault of our own, maybe based on what's going on with the dynamic relationship between the parents or both of our caregivers, maybe because of things in their own past journey, not having necessarily to do with us at all. Because we don't have that maturity, we will always assign an attempt to have a semblance, a sense of control in our life. We will always assume it's something about us. So in absence, I'm going to really simplify this. When we don't have someone consistently available to meet our needs, all roads in childhood, at least before we're age seven, will, will land back on, must be something wrong with me. I must sure. not be worthy, lovable enough to have my needs met. Right. So the more we repeat those stories in those overwhelming moments, the more then we begin to secure our narratives, narratives, stories, all based in very real lived experiences about who we think we are. And then we carry those stories with us into adulthood. So for a lot of us having the language to understand our story differently, right? To go from, it wasn't that I wasn't worthy of having my needs met, to have all of the other now nuanced pieces could be, to answer Taryn's question, the healing, right? If I don't have to identify with, I'm unworthy of having my needs met, if I can begin to, you know, reshape that belief that I'm, I did not have my needs met, but not because I was unworthy of having those needs met. Maybe I have language now about why my caregivers weren't able because of their own nervous system, trauma, dysregulation, or whatever it might be to meet my needs. Now I might be able to relieve my suffering by just shifting my story for the larger. And this is why I said it's both. It's both and because the reality then is all of that dysregulation is still living in my mind and body. The memory of those overwhelming moments are still here and embodied when I'm in those reactive cycles. So for the large majority of us, having the new story to overlay on what's happening is a huge healing aspect of the journey, though this is why we then have to shift into shifting the way our body is experiencing that moment. Because if we don't, no amount of logic no amount of knowing a different story is going to change what my nervous system is doing in those moments. And this is a big reason why I shifted even the way that I work 
coming from a very traditional system of working solely with the mind or mostly with the mind to now include the body. Because Taryn, for a lot of us and anyone listening was a similar question. The story is part of the story, part of the journey, though the body is also creating the story. So unless we create safety in new choices that we can make in the present moment, the story that our body is going to keep telling our mind is not going to be the story that we want to live by. So in the book, so you've mentioned around both being important. And I think for many people, the sort of the narrative part, and I, I don't know, maybe not for many, but it's, but talk therapy is very popular. So people get like, oh, if I can sort of talk and think my way through this, that will be helpful. And acknowledging, obviously, that's your roots. That's where you came from. That was helpful up to a point, but really it doesn't make space for acknowledge that the actual nervous system has its own story and that story is very deep and it needs attention. So one of the things I saw that you have in your lovely workbook is breath work. And I'm a breath work facilitator. That's one of the things I've learned because of my own journey coming back into relationship with being in my body. And you have some of my favorite techniques in there. So I wonder if you'd be open to sharing like what is, or, or any technique that jumps out to you, but what is one simple way that someone who's listening who goes, oh, I want to kind of connect in more what the body's saying, how might they do that? Yeah, and I, I want to just go back to something too about um, language and, and trauma. Um, the, re, the large majority of us have experienced trauma at, at an age or these overwhelming events, because that's how we define trauma, a stressful event in which we were under-supported at an age when we were pre-verbal. Um, for some of us, it begins in utero. And I know that was the case for me living in a completely dysregulated mother who actually, when she started to experience morning sickness, um, when pregnant with me at age 42, 15 years after she had um, my middle sibling, my sister, and then my, my brother was 18 years older than me, she thought that I was actually stomach cancer. So I can imagine the amount of stress and cortisol that was washing over my little developing fetus until she came to realize realize that it was indeed me, a baby inside of her. And then because we have come from a history of a lot of chronic illness in my family, and that older sister had a lot of chronic illness herself, very active around the time when my mom found out that she was even pregnant with me, then there was a lot of concern, right? More and more stress. Um, so I'm sharing that because when when this over, when these overwhelming experiences happen, when we don't even have the capacity for language, talking about them is outright impossible. Um, we don't have the story to narrate. Um, it really is more in the sensations in our body. In addition to, and again, I'm really hesitant. I do like to describe the brain, but when I do describe it, I simplify it. And by no means is there any one area that is responsible for one thing in our brain. It's all interconnected, kind of functioning together. Though for the, the, the where trauma or our emotional world is stored in our brain is actually not necessarily the language area at all. And I'm just emphasizing this again before I get to the breathwork practices to highlight why for so many of us narrating, talking about our story, if we even have access to the words to narrate it, doesn't actually create change. Um, and some of us might even say, depending on how much we're re consistently retelling the story and identifying it, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I might actually be keeping myself stuck in that idea or that belief that that is my whole story, not allowing myself to change. So dropping into the body, teaching my body in those moments, first and foremost, maybe becoming aware when my body is dysregulated. So before we even get to a breathwork practice, um, we can even attune intentionally or become conscious of our breath to get some information about how stressed out 
our body even is. Um, so if listeners right now are even to put a hand on their chest, if they feel comfortable, a hand on their belly, and maybe just if it's closing your eyes feels safe um, for some of us, I can limit the external distraction so I can really tune into my body. And if you were just to take a moment to just simply assess without judgment, how and where do you feel your breath coming, right? And for the many of us who our breath is so faint, or maybe you notice that I'm not even breathing and I'm a big person who holds my breath a lot, right? That might be an indicator that your nervous system is in that state of shutdown, that disconnected state that I was describing. Um, a lot, a, a bigger portion of you or another portion of you might notice that, oh my gosh, my breath, I'm heaving out of my chest. It's really quick. It's rapid. You know, I almost felt like I just got back from a run. Um, that might be evidence that your nervous system is in that fight or flight response. You're in that sympathetic nervous system of activated energy. Um, a breath work that I like to talk about because a lot of us are too, we have too much energy. Our chest is heaving. We feel anxious. We feel nervous. Um, we can teach our body and shift the way we're intentionally breathing and teach ourselves how to breathe deeply. Even of us again, that could look like as simple as, as difficult as this is, because something I noticed in myself, my posture even began to become so constricted. I, I got a hunched over shoulder look. All of this again, related to all of this tension, stress in my body that I didn't ever know how to release. For me, when I learned about deep belly breathing, it was really difficult. I had a hard time breathing from do every morning before I got out of bed is I would make it easier for my shoulders to relax for me to access breathing from that belly space. And I just taught my body how to maybe for just five breaths. So anyone who's doing this might be, maybe they choose to lay down if they're sitting, obviously if it's safe to do so. And maybe just putting your hand on your belly and teaching, breathing deeply, feeling your belly inflate like a balloon and then calmly and slowly allowing all of that to come out. And the reason why I'm always talking about the belly breath is because this is something we can do regardless of whoever is around us. It's kind of like our sneaky back pocket way that we can begin to regulate if we're in that heightened, I'm breathing quickly, I'm feeling nervous, I'm feeling anxious state that a lot of us revisit um, quite frequently even. That deep belly breathing can shift us from that sympathetic response into that calming parasympathetic response. And we can maybe even be doing that once we learn how to do it, sitting or laying, you know, before we get out of bed, then throughout our day. Emphasizing this last part, because as a breathwork facilitator, I'm sure you say this often, it's not a magic bullet. It's not like a do one time at one point in your day and never do it again throughout the rest of your day and expect your body to be regulated when you're having a stressful moment. It's how can I remain present and conscious to as my body is starting to amplify, as I'm starting to feel the sensations of stress, which for a lot of us means getting comfortable seeing, observing, witnessing. In the book, I one of the exercises in the workbook is a stress ladder where I invite readers to get attuned to their body, to write you know, from one to 10. What do I notice as I begin to ante up my stress? What is the first thing I notice? Is it, you know, I start to feel a little sweaty. I start to you know, feel some tension. And then as that's happening now in real time, outside of maybe my my, my presupposed breathwork moment in the morning, now I can learn how to take my body down in stress so that I can remain responsive because the reality of it is there is a point of no return. When stress overwhelms my system, I will become reactive in that old habitual way. So we can become present. We can first notice in any moment how stressed is my body. A breath is a great place to look. Like I said, hand on belly, hand on chest, see how stressed I am. 
And then I can become intentional and bring my stress level down so that I can remain responsive regardless of what's happening around me. Yeah, thank you for that that awareness aspect. Yeah, I think I went about that backwards. I just started doing lots of more breath work and things. And then over time, I was like, oh, I'm starting to notice like where my breath is throughout the day. But I think it would have been really wise to actually make that a part of my day before. So thank you for that. That's beautiful. One of the questions from actually a dear friend of mine, uh, Fawn Music, Fawn as in the deer, um, she asks, how do I, or how can I soften to grief instead of hardening to anger and snapping, which reminds me of prickliness. <laughs> well, that's my, my addition. <laughs> I, um, Fawn, I actually appreciate you even acknowledging because grief, sadness, and anger are, are so interconnected. Um, and a lot of times you might even have heard it said that, you know, anger is kind of the surface and what's below the surface is is that feeling of grief, of loss, of mourning. So I think even in the question, understanding for listeners that those two are interconnected. And for a lot of us, you know, keeping in that surface level of the anger aspect of it, not to minimize, anger is often wrapped up in our grief, but keeping our focus solely on the anger can allow us to maintain some semblance of control. I might feel more comfortable with what I can say or do or react from anger than if I were to really pull back that onion and look at it and acknowledge, right, how how deeply hurt and wounded I am. And, you know, when we're talking about healing in general, I do think that grief is a huge part of the journey. Loss is, I think, a very much a, a reality. So, acknowledging, you know, loss means two things. It means allowing ourselves to have that experience or to put that label, you know, peeling back that onion that, yes, I feel angry and I also feel sadness. And then to allow ourselves to actually feel it. I broke that up into two steps because we can say I'm sad, you know, and I I very much would say I'm things, you know, for, for, for some time, but not really allowing myself to feel sad, mm-hmm. to sit in, Sadness. And again, for, for a lot of us, that's why we stay in anger because I'm so much more comfortable with how my body feels comfortable, meaning familiar, right? And again, I just want to highlight that because that which is familiar will always be more comfortable because I think anger is one of those places where some of us might be like, well, I'm not comfortable when I'm angry. I'm hurting myself. I'm hurting other people, but we're comfortable to the extent that we're familiar with it. And again, for a lot of us, like I said, embodying sadness can be so debilitating, so overwhelming, especially if we didn't have that support, especially if we didn't see sadness or grief in our homes. I mean, part of it for a lot of us is some of us came from homes that didn't allow certain feelings, didn't allow any emotions. We didn't talk about emotions largely in my family at all. There was no real moments of expressing sadness that I can at least remember where I even saw other people. And when we see someone else feeling sad, we're given first and foremost the message that it's okay to feel sad. When we don't see anyone expressing things like sadness or grief, normal human emotions, we're left but to interpret it as it's not okay to do that. Mm. Right. So a lot of us, again, have that modeling. So it is very vulnerable to pull back the onion and to say, not only can I have the language that I'm feeling sad, I had a very real loss, but to allow my body to feel that sadness. So to answer the question, right, it's allowing our body to be sad, allowing it to be okay 
um, that, that we feel sad, even if we might not have the language for why we're sad. I remember as I started to reconnect with my body and myself and really came to the awareness that I had a lot to mourn. I didn't have an emotionally connected childhood. I didn't have a parent, right? I had to mourn that which wasn't. Um, and I spent the better months. I mean, I shared one story of it and how to do the work of crying into a bowl of oatmeal without even understanding why I was so deeply, overwhelmingly sad and just allowing myself not to understand, not to shame the sadness, to allow myself just to be in that, that puddle. And for me, that continued um, for the better part of months where I would just allow myself safely, of course, with supportive people, environments around me to just be in that sadness because it's not enough just to say, yeah, I'm sad. You know, I know logically this is that moment in time where logic doesn't change the allowance of myself to be sad. So saying, you know, I'm sad, um, saying I'm angry for the listener who asked the question again, Fawn, might be when I have those moments of anger, maybe I can hit pause. I can explore, get curious. Okay, I'm angry and might I be sad? Might I be mourning something in this moment? And if I am, can I just take a moment to allow whatever sensations that I begin to become aware of? Because again, it's a process. If I'm not used to tuning in to how I'm feeling when I'm sad, it'll be difficult in the beginning. But can I allow myself to embody this sadness in a safe, contained way for just a moment in time? Because again, until I allow myself all of the feelings of, of sadness, of grief, even if we've gotten very good at distracting ourselves away from them, maybe at being angry and exploding so I don't have to go deeper into what's really there, they're still there. So until again, I give them the life, um, allowing myself to express them by just being in presence with them, they will always remain. So obviously we keep going back to childhood. I mean, that just seems such a critical piece. And I, earlier you said around this idea of not being able to regulate until ages six, seven, et cetera, and how that that, I don't know, I got super sad when I was hearing, just thinking about how much pain there is right now through all of us dysregulated humans wandering around trying to make sense of it all. And that, again, adds gratitude for this beautiful workbook you're putting, you've put out there. Um, so I want to tell just a brief story and then link it into another question, which I think will be very helpful for anyone who's who has kids or is thinking of having kids and is kind of wanting to explore that. So the story you were just telling around crying. So... And again, I'm honoring my parents so much. This is just with so much love. I love my dad. I love my mom. Like I'm, I'm in for the, like I'm, I'm not holding this anymore. I used to hold it, and I'm thankful for, for that work that has allowed me to forgive and release and come back to kindness and and uh, compassion. So, in this case, the the, the method they chose for <laughs> for helping me to regulate when, which was actually helping them to regulate, was that uh, when I would do something that they thought was inappropriate, they would say stop doing that. And if I tell you one more, um, this is the last time I'm telling you, if you do it again, you're going to get a smack. Basically, that was their methodology. And so when I would feel those big feelings, the first time I ever threw an actual full tantrum was when I was an adult doing a breathwork session. It was the first time in my life that I felt safe enough to actually let my body have a full-blown flailing arms, crying. And I was like, wow, that's how that feels. Because if I tried that as a child, I would get hit. And then what happened is that at a certain age, um, my parents started getting divorced and this whole thing unfolded. And for the first time, I really witnessed the vulnerability of my dad or the first time that I remember, I started seeing him crying. And he would, when he would cry, 
which, as you say, could have been a sense of, oh, that's okay to do that. It's okay to express sadness. I remember clearly that I would sit there and be like, I feel so uncomfortable. Like, I don't understand. He's crying, but he's not hurt. Like, why is he doing that? It's not, you know, that he hit, that's what I get hit for. And so the question that I have is, is from someone named Nurturing Woman. What is the most important thing for parents to focus on to raise happy, authentic children? I appreciate, Nate, you sharing, again, so much um, of your journey. And again, I just want to acknowledge before I, I answer the question to parents is that parenting advice has really shifted and changed over the years. I mean, there was a generation, my parents, that is, that, you know, for a very long time, they were, we were, we, it, children were described more or less as a house plan with this idea that just keep them physically alive, <laughs> quite literally, Right. And that's, that's the goal here. Um, we didn't have any conversation of emotions and emotional world, definitely not mapping it back onto the nervous system like we now know is the case. So I have such compassion um, for my parents and any parent out there understanding that there's so many influences, including, like I said, mainstream parenting advice that has definitely changed for over the, the decades and centuries that a lot of very well-meaning parents were, again, utilizing and wasn't necessarily so helpful. So anytime I get any version of a question of, you know, how can I X, Y, or Z for my child, I first want to celebrate the parent um, for, you know, the conscious awareness of wanting to shift and change these intergenerational patterns to show up differently mm. so that their child can have a different life experience. That's, that's so commendable. That That is so, you know, amazing. And the answer I usually give is not one. I think that the asker of the question or the parent is maybe imagining, but it's not necessarily an instructive of what to say or do in those moments because your ability to even be present with your child in those moments of overwhelming emotions, which is the goal, right? Be that safe, secure base, not making it a, a being able to be safe and secure enough to be present, not allowing their emotions, the child's emotions to overwhelm the parent so that then they could explore, be curious, not assign or assume what the child is feeling, ask from the child what they're feeling, not assign or assume what the child should do next to feel better because that's what works for the parent to allow the child to explore for themselves what they need to do for their emotions. So that is ultimately the goal to be a guide, a supportive you know, participant. I'm seeing your emotions. I'm creating a container so that you can re remain safe while you're experiencing these emotions. And I'm allowing you to have the experience so that over time you can develop confidence in regulating all of your emotions. So that's really the simplified goal. However, to do that, the focus first and foremost has to be on the parent themselves, the parent exploring how they navigate their own emotions. What are they modeling to the children? How available actually are they in these moments? Despite the greatest set intention, if an adult doesn't feel safe in their own sadness, they're not going to be able to be present when their child is sad. Chances are they're going to fall into their own habitual reaction to create that safety for themselves, then modeling whatever that is for the child, which might not even be being able to be present for them at all, telling them not to cry so that none of us have to feel overwhelmed or neither of us, I should say, have to feel overwhelmed in that moment. So the advice I will give to any parent and the reason why I do this work for the individual is because it really is reconnecting with ourselves, our own emotions, really exploring how we navigate emotions so that we can become that safe, secure base, whether it's our children, our romantic partner, our business partners, or whoever we want to relate to, really what's going to be most impactful is how safe are we? Are we allowing that safe connection, that safe expression 
and that ability to be in relationship? Or are we so overwhelmed that it is really only about us when we're in that dysregulated state? Yeah, that's exactly it. Hey? That's the thing. It always comes back to to I, to the self. That's the only thing any of us actually really have, I don't even want to say control, but have responsibility for is how to, is, is what we can develop responsibility for, res- the ability to respond. That's an inner process always. So this kind of leads into another question. We're actually almost at the end of the of the questions from from the lovely people on Instagram, but it's also from Taryn again, and it's this one's more around couples. So it might be a very similar answer, but maybe there's a little snippet in there somewhere. But what is a tip that you would have for couples when triggered during conflict? Really, really great question and and really common experience. I mean, in our, you know, interpersonal, often romantic relationships is where those those conflicts is the most emotions um, that can come to the surface. And we have to understand that, you know, even, you know, as per this entire conversation we're having, what we're bringing into our current adult relationships is so colored by our past, by those old reactive habitual patterns. So the greatest gift Um, that we can give our partner is awareness of first and foremost, our own nervous system awareness, knowing when we're entering that stressed out state, that point of no return, where it doesn't matter how loving I want to be to you, I'm going to be reactive. I'm going to keep myself safe in the only way that I knew how to keep myself safe. And chances are, it's not going to have a focus on your best interest at all. And so understanding when I'm in that space so that I can remain compassionate and connected to my heart and ultimately to the loving being that I am and ultimately to you as partner, the loving being that you are. And another gift we can extend is by learning our nerve, our partner's nervous system reactions as well so that we can begin to identify when they're approaching that point of no, no, no return so that we can not engage. We can keep ourselves safe. We're not going to try to have that really serious conversation when our partner is yelling, screaming, so dysregulated after a difficult day of work and we just need to talk to them right now, right? We're not going to set ourselves up to be speaking to a connected, calm, compassionate individual on the other side of that conversation. So the workbook, I think, you know, is a great tool for that individual awareness. Also for for partners out there who are both um, on this journey of noticing these different states of nervous system dysregulation so that we can make choices that allow both party to remain in, in that beautiful state of compassion, compassionate connection. And um, to speak to this point just really quickly, the next book, what I'm actually in the process of, of finalizing the manuscript for is all on relationships, just this. So um, a really deep dive into exactly this conversation that we're having. It's based a lot in the nervous system as well. And ultimately the goal is to become a trauma-informed partnership, which just means a nervous system-informed understanding that both of us have nervous system states of dysregulation that are going to take us out of that ability to be connected to ourselves, to our partners, and to the world around us. And when we have the language, I think we can gift our relationships with much more intentional, responsive choices. Yeah, I just had an experience a few days ago that I feel a bit embarrassed about, but I'll share it anyway because I think it might serve... um which is that I hadn't seen my dear beloved Carly for a while. She'd been away and I went to meet her and we'd spent just, I think, two nights together and something happened. It was a little thing and I shouted at her and I 
and I, it was like so quick. I went from, and I have been so calm recently. I've been doing all my ice baths, my breath work. I've been feeling so regulated and even through intense things I've been feeling. But then of course, meeting my, my closest partnership in my life is like, and I just, what was interesting about it. And the reason I wanted to share it now is that, yes, I lost it in that moment. And after three or four breaths, I shouted once and then I took a few breaths and I said, I regulated, I sat with it and we drove a bit more and I, and then I just spoke to her because we were driving at the time and I just said, listen, I'm really sorry. That was nothing about you. That was all about me that I just went into a total state of overwhelm and I just lost it. And it's like, please, I'm sorry. And thank you. Please like, yeah, let me know. And then she could share. And it was immediately we could neutralize or, or dissolve or soften a situation that could have kept us silently driving together for hours. And so, yeah, I just wanted to share that. I, I appreciate. And I will also disclose um, a recent event myself. So with the release of the workbook, right, you know, not only am I feeling excited, I have a lot of vulnerability, right? This idea of putting a work out into the world, being expo exposed, being seen, what will people think um, when, you know, stress for me goes up even exciting stress. Excitement is a version of, of stress to our bodies. It registers the same. My sleep gets impacted. We have a full moon happening. I notice for me when the full moon, when we have those kind of planetary shifts, my sleep gets impacted. So sharing all this to describe my resources, you know, are limited. My resources, my stress, the way I'm sleeping, the way I'm eating, the way I'm just calm and grounded navigating stress, or am I, you know, worrying like I'm sharing about this workbook will impact then my ability to tolerate general irritations to tolerate things happening in my partnership. And, you know, very similar sounds like to your story very recently with stress. And I have two partners. We're all releasing a workbook. We're all feeling, we're all not sleeping well. We're all feeling more or less the same. I've been irritable and we all have had a punchiness. And there was a moment a day or two ago where all I wanted to do was celebrate with the two partners who helped create the workbook and put it out and support it into the world. And yet I was irritable and there was, you know, something that was said that I didn't like that i raised my voice back and said something back that I didn't really mean. And then I stormed off to the bed with that program to call. You didn't, A, you said something hurtful, right? Giving myself a moment of space, illustrating too that some of us need space. I need to physically remove myself from that conversation, that conflict, whatever it is, this experience to have that clarity. So for me, it came in the bedroom when I hit play and I noticed I can't really pay attention to what I'm watching because the reality of it is I don't want to be in here. I want to be connected to the people that I love. I didn't mean what I said. And very similarly, I put my tail between my legs, <laughs> marched out of the bedroom and, you know, I went and I apologized for the reactivity. I acknowledged, you know, that that was uncalled for. I did not mean what I said. And I acknowledged that in reality, I did want to share space. I might not have the resources to engage. And we all decided to sit quietly and watch a television program together on the couch. <laughs> mm, beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that story. It's, I think for me, there's a gentleness. The reason I wanted to share, and I'm so glad I did because then I got to hear your story, but it's like, it's not about, because I think for me, a perfectionist, I've, I, it's one of the, my patterns is I have to be perfect. If I make a mistake, it's destruction. Mm. Like I'm, you know, and, and, and that I don't feel it as much anymore, but I still have that. So to be able to even just tell the story and feel completely kind about it, like with myself and hearing your story and just being like, oh, you, that's so human. Like we're so human. It's wonderful. So mm. thank you so much for that opportunity um, and, and for sharing. Yeah, just 
look at us go. (laughs) (laughs) And to speak to the human point, Nate, there's so much there. I mean, the reality of it is how, regardless of how spiritual or how much you identify with, you know, being a spiritual being, or if you even have that belief system, we're all living in a human body. I mean, we actually just on the self-healer soundboard, Jenna, my co-host, and I just recorded a couple episodes ago was on just that navigating, you know, spiritual bypassing this idea of navigating life in human form, right? We are all, I really want to emphasize that we are all human, no matter how idealistic, how loving you might want to be in your mind is about being really honest with yourself, right? With grace and with compassion, not shaming yourself, really just understanding the humanity. And this is why I share so frequently and freely my own journey with hopes that you can see or hear context details might be different, but if my journey and you sharing your stories like this gives someone the gift of that grace and that compassion to understand that we are all human. The idealistic, the want, right, can only go so far as how can my body shift, translate, and embody that intention or that want. And for a lot of us, again, our bodies are are so human, so dysregulated that we're not giving ourselves the opportunity. And it's of no fault of our own. And it doesn't have any meaning around the type of quote unquote person, good or bad, that we are. We're human and we universally share that. Thank you so much for bringing that up. That's one of the big, so at the at the intro of this podcast, anyone who's listening will have heard me say that this podcast is helping down to earth seekers and free people to live their truth and be the change. And the reason that I said down to earth was specifically because when people I often see an association with someone who's a seeker, a spiritual seeker, or someone who's on the journey of wanting of transformation, really. There's often an association of getting out, like going somewhere, like when I can, I can ascend, I can transcend, uh, you know, all these stories around. And for me, more and more, it's become so clear that the, the highest tree is only that high because its roots are super deep in the darkness, like deep down in the soil, deeply integrated into all the underworld stuff. And that's what enables a really beautiful being to rise up is having the capacity to be super rooted and embodied. So I'm so glad you said that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful, I think about, I actually have a very, very large tree tattoo on my back um, and trees. I think the symbolism, the meaning, right? Literally, like you're saying how the roots literally reach so down into the earth are so grounded yet, you know, go up to the heavens, their leaves. I think I, I visit that visual um, a lot. So there's just one more question from someone, and then I've I've got a big one I want to ask about the about the book, the contents of the book. Um, so this is from Lily Zapeda, who's actually a previous guest on this podcast, a wonderful human. So anyone who's listening who wants to check her out as well, I recommend that. And she asks, and this is a question I was kind of curious about myself, and so I'll give a bit of pretext before I ask her question, which is. You now, and I don't don't want to add any overwhelm here, but you have the attention of a lot of people in the world, like really a huge amount. And one of the things I've often thought about, and I'm not someone who has that kind of attention on me, but that attention itself becomes or can become or has the potential to be limiting because in the world, when enough people see someone a certain way, there's a sort of invitation or pressure to remain that way or be that way or embody that way. In a, in a way that might be a little unrealistic. So, so the question that she's asked is, what has been the most difficult part of your job since you gained so much popularity? Very interestingly, I think this is the double-edged sword of it. So, and again, all of this for me maps back on to childhood being 
Mm-hmm. You use the word kind of perfectionistic. I can merge that for me with achievement, right? Always trying to perform in a very particular way. You know, so for me, you know, that that tendency to do that began in childhood as a protection, right? In absence of me feeling safe enough to just be authentically me, I shift it right into this pattern of doing. Yet this the, the internal conflict that I was describing earlier existed there as well. There was a deep part of me that that just wanted to be enough, that just wanted to be seen for being who I was. Yet, so unfamiliar was I with that, I because all I was used to functioning was in this kind of performance-based role, this function quite literally for someone else, whether it was because I was succeeding and making you feel good about your affiliation next to me, or I was performing for you in a relationship, that was my familiar zone of being. So sharing all that to say that as I came to the awareness and became conscious of how little I how little I knew myself, so therefore how little I was being authentic with the people around me, I was always modifying. I almost had an internal tape that I would play anytime I would want to say or do or express something of myself before I even allowed it to kind of come up and outward. I would almost have a vetting process where I would imagine how it would be for you for me to say this thing, you know, feel this way respond or react or do whatever it is that I was instinctually wanting to respond, react, or do. And if I had any indication that it would cause you stress, worry, or you would not react or you would not remain connected to me, you would get upset Mm. in some way, right? I wouldn't do it. And when I came to that reality, I really made a pact with myself to begin to practice being authentic, to express what it was for me even if the reaction on the other side was a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding, or a downright upset. You didn't like what I was saying. So for me, going online in general from the moment I first created that Instagram account was an exercise in just that. Can I practice sharing my story, what it was for me? And of course, there was a concern, whether it's the almost you know five, six million that we have following now, or you know as the account account was building, that fear of reaction of how it would be was 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 there, was present and remains. So regardless of how many eyes are on me, while again, there's this desperate part of me that just wants to be affirmed, validated, wants to be enough for me just being me in front of all of those eyes and all of those people, the, to answer the question, then the daily struggle is still there. It's still very uncomfortable to have simply all of those eyes on me made more uncomfortable by, again, the filters that people put on. Like you're saying, I mean, we'll see, we're all subjective. We're all filtering what we think we're seeing or hearing of someone else. I talk often about being misinterpreted. All of that is real, right? Once we're us, then it is up to interpretation of other people. So then it's navigating, of course, staying grounded and staying authentic to myself regardless of what the people around me are doing, which of course is a byproduct of the more eyes on you, the more interpretations, but it's not in a vacuum. We all experience this, whether or not you have the Instagram account with whatever many followers after your name or whether or not this is just happening in your interpersonal relationships. We are all filtering, imagining, filling in stories just like we did in childhood, right? To create the stories that we're usually using as our filters in all of our relationships, which again, the more authentic and grounded we are in our authenticity, the more we're able to tolerate those moments when people aren't getting us or when people aren't liking what they are seeing 
um, because the reality of it is there's a ton of people on this earth. Um, not everyone is, you know, for us. Um, not everyone is going to feel safe or not everyone is going to be a person that we're interested in continuing connection with. And that's okay too. Well, this actually leads perfectly into the final question I have for you. Other than the the kind of, anyway, there's one more little one. We'll see how we do for time. But uh, but I want to read you a quote, which you may have already heard. Uh, it's from Gabor Mate. And for any listener, I think it would also be very beneficial. And I just, it, it spoke deeply to me when I, when, I, when, he, when I read it first. So he says, as a child, we have two fundamental needs. One need is attachment. The other need is authenticity. Authenticity is the connection to ourselves because without authenticity, without a connection to our gut feelings, just how long do you survive out there in nature? So authenticity is not some new age pseudo-spiritual concept. It's actually a survival necessity. What happens if in order to survive or to adjust to your environment, you have to suppress your gut feelings? You have to suppress your authenticity. And so that leads me into the question, which is what you've just been sharing about. But like, but how would someone reconnect with this uh, authentic self or what is that authentic self? And how does someone begin or move forward in that journey of connection or reconnection? I, I appreciate you reading that. I, I love um, Dr. Mate's work. I think it's just so incredible and paradigm shifting. Um, and I'm very much in alignment with, with all of it. And um, there's no simple uh, answer, as I'm sure listeners are probably aware, I wasn't going to give a necessarily simple answer to this question um, because it's a process. And I very intentionally, you know, structured the workbook um, to uh, embody that process, which begins, maybe you're not so surprised to hear what I'm going to say is now in the body, because to be authentically connected to us, our body needs to feel safe. Our emotions or the sensations, like I was sharing that are running through our bodies, whether or not we're connected to that body or not, need to feel safe, like safe terrain so that I can attune to those deeper instincts that, that Dr. Mate is talking about, that inner guidance um, that you'll hear me say, that, you know, that intuition that led, that's inside of us. If our body is not safe, if our body is dysregulated and it's going to continually tell us that circumstances are unsafe based on past experiences with similar circumstances, maybe not even reflecting the accuracy of, of the moment and or of my new toolkit that I can begin to employ, right, in that moment, ultimately, I need to feel safe, grounded, and regulated in my body. So the journey begins with creating that conscious awareness of how is my body doing, even that exercise we went through together at the beginning, how regulated is my nervous system, right, really attuning to all of the dysregulation that many of us are carrying with us. And then as we be create a safer space in our body, we can peel back that next layer. Um, the whole section two of the workbook talks about our emotional self, all of the stories, everything we've just been talking about that have been created and repeated and rehearsed over time, filtering our current relationships, right, of our ego, of our shadow, of our inner child, all of the impact of our past and what we've come to believe as a result of that, all of the filtering and coloring that's doing of our current experiences until I become conscious of the impact of that and just like right? Dr. Frankel said earlier, create some space for new responses that allow me to remain connected to myself and others around me. I'm not going to be able to truly attune to my instincts, my deeper intuition. So it's peeling back, building the foundational safety and connection in my body, peeling back all of the impacts by seeing it first 
by creating regulation and grounded safety in the current moment so that then the final section that you'll meet, which is I'm sure the main reason why most people will pick up the workbook to meet yourself, the final section is about the authentic self. Now that I have space, now that I have safety, now I can begin to spend time right? Because it doesn't just come up like magic. Oh, well, this is who I am now. I need to take those moments to drop in, to ask me, how's this feeling, this experience? What do I want to do next? What do I need? That's actually how we utilize our intuition. It's breaking a habit for most of us have of looking out, of vetting the world like I used to do of, you know, this person told me that I should and hitting pause and asking me what I should do. And that is our goal of learning how to create that that safe space so that I can attune to, because the authentic self, right, is of course these, these higher order things or these more self-actualized concepts like purpose and passion, but it also is built by connecting to my unique body. What does my body need? How do I need to show up in service of maintaining that safe connection so that I can drop into and have space for things like purpose and passion? Because if my body doesn't feel like its needs are being consistently met, it's not going to prioritize purpose, passion, creativity, imagination. It's going to prioritize getting those needs met in terms of survival. So it's a process of beginning with becoming conscious, creating safety in the body, seeing the impact of our past so that we can become more responsibly connected in our present moment, and then being connected in our present moment with ourselves, building in those moments to drop in and explore and be, first be curious and then explore those deeper intuitions. That's the journey of reconnecting with and of meeting and of living ultimately in our authentic self. Simple, though not easy. <laughs> simple, though a daily process and commitment, but I think breaking it into the, the simple, practical, you know, whys and hows might make then the consistent application um, more approachable, which is my intention. No, that's exactly what I've just hearing you speak. I really feel like I wish that I'd had this book 10, 15 years ago, whenever, however long ago, but I'm so glad that it's existing now because so having looked through and seen like, oh my gosh, so much of these things that I've integrated into my life, you've, you've laid them out in a really straightforward, straightforward way that people can actually follow step by step. And I think that that is such a gift to take all of this information and move it into a place with a languaging and an intention and a look that is so attractive and so just like, oh, I can, this is, I can do this. This is available. So again, I've thanked you a lot, but thank you again. <laughs> Nada, it truly, truly means the world hearing that because again, I, I've most of these concepts have been spoken about by, you know, into the ages, by people, by theorists. I read a million books on the ego. And, you know, for a lot of us, again, it just remains as this concept out there, maybe a, a very well-intentioned one that I might want to engage with, but we don't have the understanding of how to simplistically understand it and apply it and make those habits consistent. So, you know, hearing that that's translating to you, hoping that it translates to many other readers out there. Um, that's my goal is to make it feel approachable because I know one of the byproducts of living in this very reactive cycle that we've been talking about for so long, driven by nervous system dysregulation, is how little we feel empowered, how much mm. we feel like we cannot change based on the reality that we haven't had that opportunity for that space to become responsive. All we've been living is literally a reactive pattern after the next. So it's understandable that you wake up at whatever decade it is and you don't feel like you have the power 
to change, though giving people the approachable tools, even the understanding of why you feel so disempowered, my hope is that that can create the space for this daily commitment because change really can lead to lifetime transformation based on these these small promises each day, based on the commitment to become conscious and to string together new so many new choices that what we've done without even us knowing it half the time is we've created a new set of habits for ourselves. Well, thank you again. And I just have one more question to ask you, which is when you hear the words, we are already free, what comes up for you? Just like I was sharing with you when I, when I saw that you had switched um, the name of your podcast into this name, I, I got whole full body chills and I, and I smiled really big because there's so much truth in that statement. A new truth that I've come to believe over time, which is that I, I, you know, I believe that if we can create this habit of being a conscious being, of course, understanding that many of us have to heal our bodies and the dysregulation that prevents us from being that. The reality of it is there is a being inside of everyone listening that has the ability, the possibility of feeling already free. And I'm being very intentional about that language because I know a lot of us aren't living in that state of felt freedom. We're, you know, constricted by these patterns, these habits, even these identities that we've wrapped around ourselves, And we might not even believe it when I'm saying that there is a, a being inside that has the possibility of living a free life. So for me, it, there's such just a, I've internalized that belief that I've always been already free. It's just a matter of creating alignment now with this vessel that I've been gifted to, you know, kind of embody of this terrain of earth school. I have to teach my body to live in alignment with that belief. Mm. Ah. Thank you so much, Nicole. Like your your energy, I, for me also having spoken with you now, I think it was two or three years ago, two years, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but your whole energy to me looks, and maybe because my energy is so different, but I see just you sitting across the world on a camera screen right now, but you have a certain life force energy that I'm just so enjoying being a part of. So thank you so much again. And just one more qu more practical question, which is those who are listening and who are now going, I need this book. I need to know more about this human. Like, let's get involved. Where would they do all those wonderful things? Well, thank you um, first, Nate, for, for your time, for your interest, however many years back it was and talking to me then and, and having this conversation with me now and also for sharing um, that shift in awareness and perception, I should say, of me. And I think it very much aligns with my continued evolution of mm -hmm. having so many more moments now where I am truly aligned, where I'm not censoring, right? Like I shared in the beginning, I had a lot of fear. There was a lot of like, oh, can I say this this way? Well, right having the freedom now to to have safety and security and just being me, I think is translating to to what you're perceiving now. I, I feel so much more connected in flow in these moments, so much more passionate and purposeful again, because I'm just truly in my presence. I'm not fearing. I'm not vetting. I'm first and foremost able to be in presence with you. I'm not distracted elsewhere. Like I spent so much of my life. But again, before I, I end with where you can find me, these aren't all the moments of my life. I still have moments, like I said, where I'm prickly, where I'm reactive, where I'm disconnected, where I'm dissociated. So by any stretch of the imagination, I do not want readers to part with this idea that I've reached this utopian and now I'm here. I mean, there's moments of time, right, where I'm still a human being, but I remain committed to keeping my body resourced enough 
that I can continue to remain responsive, always dropping in for me to my heart so that I can be in alignment with who I really am and what I really want. And if you have any of interest of following along and outside, of course, of the workbook, um, which is now I'm hopefully available in all of the major retailers. So wherever you like to buy books, you should be able to find a copy now of how to do the work. Um, I invite anyone listening to follow me across all of the social media platforms now where my handle is the holistic psychologist. Um, on Instagram, where it began, .holistic.psychologist.com, that we have a TikTok, a YouTube, a podcast. I invite you to follow me on any of those platforms because my commitment, in addition, obviously, to putting out comprehensive resources like a workbook that I have behind me, it's to have these conversations for free, to make sure that regardless of wherever you're listening around the world, this is information that you can utilize, maybe make sense of, and employ in your life. In addition to, I want to shout out the incredible community of self-healers. When I put that first post up, however many years ago it is, I set the intention of creating a hashtag with my hope to anyone who resonated with the language I was using with my journey, who wanted to be a part or help create the safe, supportive community could find and connect with each other. So whether or not you're you're buying the workbook, um, I have a website too, theholisticpsychologist.com and howtomeetyourself.com with more information about, again, where to buy the book, though it should be available in all major retailers. By this point, again, I invite you to, to follow along with all of the free resources that I remain committed to always putting out for the collective so that these conversations can happen and so that this connection with a safe community can be created for all of you listening. Thank you, Nicole LaPera the holistic psychologist thank you for for doing your work for showing up for it for being being the person that you are in all your humanness i love when i join a circle a men's circle i'm part of and the, the initial welcoming we say to each other is all of you is welcome here and so thank you for bringing all of you into this world and for gifting us and for the reflection that we all get to experience through that as we all walk each other home, as Ramda says so beautifully. So thank you again. It's been a real pleasure and an honor and a, and a privilege. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. And thank you, as you do, for sharing so much of yourself and your journey, Nate. It's truly an honor to, to remain connected to you. Thank you again to Dr. Nicole LaPera for prioritizing time to share her gentle wisdom with us here on the We Are Already Free podcast. You can find links to Nicole's Instagram, book, website, and all the things we talk about in the show notes on whatever app you're listening or directly at alreadyfree.me slash howtomeetyourself. That's also where you'll find a link to download my free five minutes to you guided breathwork meditation, which, as I mentioned earlier, is 100% free. Finally, to enjoy the full length video version of this podcast, join the Patreon tribe. The link to that is, you guessed it, in the show notes. Thank you for joining me on this wild and beautiful journey. Please share this episode on your socials, in emails, leave a review and follow wherever you listen to podcasts to be first to hear about the new episodes coming out every week. Until next week, thank you so much for being on this path with me. I wish you all the blessings and please remember that you are already free. Mm -hmm.